So, Lori, I'm on the West Coast, California, early in the morning for me anyway, and, and I think you're on the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right now I'm on the East Coast. I'm in New Jersey right now. So, and that that's where you're from. Yes, yes. Both Michael and I grew up here in New Jersey, and we met at work because we had full-time jobs on top of the winery. So he was a food chem, or he, I should say, he still is a food chemist, and I was a microbiologist. And we met at a major food company here in New Jersey. I was doing microbiology, and he needed uh, a product, what they call a test kitchen run. So before people can actually eat it and taste it to decide whether or not it's going to go further, but you have to make sure that it's microbiologically sound. And we don't want to kill people because they're tasting things. <laughs> and yeah, <clears throat> so he had a way, um, he had a salad dressing that he was trying to get out onto a test kitchen run. And I had time to do the micro on it. So that is how we met. <laughs> Interesting. That's it's love blooms over the Petri dish, as it were. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody. This is Wine Saves Lives podcast. Stephen Kent Mirasu with Lori Budd a friend and a very talented winemaker for Jacina Wines in Paso Robles. We're going to be talking about life, talking about the wine world, talking about a variety of things this morning and get a chance for, for my audience to get to know Lori and Mike better and their wines. And, and we're excited about the opportunity. You mentioned you, you both have scientific backgrounds. You're both from the East Coast. You met at work. Tell me about your early family. What, what do your parents do? So I grew up in Bergen County, so very much North Jersey. I can see New York City from my house, so very much North County. My mom was an educator. She taught third grade, and then when the kids started being born, dad was a believer that she should be home with the kids. So she stayed home with us to help to raise us, and which is Something that I think is sad that it doesn't happen anymore. Lots of families today, both parents are working and I, it was always nice to have mom home and do that. And then as we got older, she started to do temporary jobs. She would actually put people out on temporary jobs. So she was finding things to keep herself busy uh, as we got older. And my dad actually started working. He was head electrician for Pan Am at Teterboro Airport, which gave us some incredible experiences. I am probably one of the very few people who can say they flew at a blimp and actually flew a blimp. <laughs> flew a blimp. We got to be in the Flying Tigers plane because Teterboro Airport was one of those small airports that all of these things when they were coming into Jersey would land there because they didn't have to deal with everything at Newark Airport. So wonderful experiences with that. And he had his own, while there, he worked there for 30 years. And while there, he started his own electrical contracting business that my brother is the main person who does all the electrical work for. So was wine part of the early family life at all? Were your parents into wine? Oh, Schaefer beer, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Good old local brand. Dad, dad enjoyed his beer. Um, and then moved on to Manhattan's. 
So wine was not part of our daily life here, although my mom is Italian, so I don't know how we skipped over that. But yeah, I think we had, I, I never remember what that wine is. I should, in the wicker, the wicker bottle thing. The Chianti, or the, the old Chianti, Chianti, yeah. But I forget what the brand was or whatever. Um, I'm sure it was done. Yeah. Right? Yes. So I'm sure there were a few of those bottles on my mom's side, but yeah, it wasn't really a main staple in our house. So you're based in Paso Robles. Yes. What is special about that area? I think every winemaker thinks their region is special. That's why they choose it. There's something that is fantastic for them, for what they want their wine to be, you know, how they want their wines to be expressed. We came to Paso in kind of a weird way. I loved... I still love Southern California. <clears throat> and when I introduced my husband, Michael, to California, because he had never been there before, when I introduced him, we went, I took him through the typical, all right, it's your first time in California. We're going to do the coast drive and do all of that stuff. And he really liked Northern California. And so one year we discussed retirement and we wanted to both retire to California, but I wanted Southern, he wanted Northern. So one year we're like, oh, let's just check out this Central Coast thing. Literally calling it a thing, had no idea what was there other than it was three hours north of LA and three hours south of San Francisco. So we both can go wherever we wanted to go. And we got there and it was honestly love at first sight. The beauty of the area took us, took our breath away. It was absolutely stunning. This is and, about how long ago was this? Oh, geez. Uh, so we've been married 28 years. Mike, he's very thinking forward. So right. he was already thinking retirement. I didn't even know what a 401k was until I met him. I'm going to say probably 25 years ago. Okay. So Paso was very different back then. There was wine. We did find wine there, but much less known, wasn't as well known as it is now. But what we fell in love with were the people, the views, and we're like, wow, this wine is really good. And then when we really started to look into wine of the region, we realized the location and proximity to the ocean and the Templeton Gap and how that comes across and the diurnal shift, depending on what district you're in, you could have a 50 degree diurnal shift that morning to at or day to evening. And we just loved how the fruit got to express itself in the area. And it became our favorite region. And that was when it came time to start our winery, which was 10, 10 years ago, 2013, we knew that was where it was going to be. So you had seen Paso prior to moving there. Yeah. You're still on the East Coast at this point in time. Talk a little bit about how you got into the wine business. What was, what sort of the, there, there are any number of different stories, obviously, almost right. a number of stories about how people get into the business. And in reading more about you and Mike and the, the start of the Dracaena brand, you're making wine as a hobbyist at first. And yes. friends seem to enjoy what you're doing and take it yeah. from there. 
So we, we like to say that we fell in love over wine, even though, I don't know, I think people think scientists have all this money because you're scientists. You don't. <laughs> in fact, it's very much the opposite. Um, <laughs> it's like being in the wine business all over again. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So when we started dating, we were both very young in our careers and we didn't have a lot of money. So we would go to the local food store, which was for here was called ShopRite. And we, there was a ShopRite Liquors and we would go and we would pick out a bottle of wine, mostly by the label. And, mm-hmm. and so we would pick out a bottle and then Mike is the food chemist. So he does all of the cooking. I'm very lucky in that respect because I would burn a house down probably annually if I did the cooking. And he would cook dinner and we would sit down and we would enjoy our conversation over a bottle. So that was how we started learning a little bit about wine and being science dorks, you can't just do anything, right? You have to start researching everything. So then we would grab a bottle that of, let's say it was Cabernet Sauvignon. And we're like, this was good. What's Cabernet Sauvignon? And then we would research that. And so that's, we did that. Then we decided there was a school here called Bacchus, and it really isn't a school, but it was called Bacchus. And what it was a facility that somebody owned and knew how to make wine. And you would pay with most people would get together with a group of friends and you paid to make a barrel of wine. This facility brought fruit from Lodi, California trucked it all the way across the country to New Jersey. And then you made wine. And all of these people are in this facility and they're getting drunk while they're making wine. And they're, Michael and I are, being our stupid scientist people and saying, well, this grape, these grapes look horrendous. They came from Lodi, Lodi, California in a truck, not even refrigerated. So you could imagine what this fruit looked like. So we actually sorted the fruit and pulled out the mog and did all of that stuff. And then they would give you little baggies of the chemicals, of the compounds that you use to make the wine, the enzymes or the sulfur. And, and we're like, wait, no, we're going to measure this out where everybody else yeah, been doing all that. <laughs> right. And at the end of this, you have a massive party and you share your wine which is totally ridiculous because everybody was making the same wine. Everybody was making Syrah because it was a giant truck. But you put your stupid label on it and you do all of that and you have this party and everybody wanted to know why our wine tasted better than their wine. And we joke and said, we didn't put mold in our wine. We we made wine, you got drunk. So we prior, were, to the, prior to this, you... As you say, you and Michael are having wine on an ongoing basis for dinner as a couple. You're not thinking about the wine business at this point in time. No, that was just something fun to do. But what happened was everybody was like, oh my gosh, your wine is so much better than ours. Then that little voice goes in your head going, huh, I wonder if we can do this. So we decided that trucking fruit across the country was a horrible idea. So then we went to a crush pad. We went to crush pad in San Francisco, which is now not there anymore. And we made wine. We got fruit from White Hawk Vineyard. We got a Syrah from White Hawk Vineyard, which again was lucky. We didn't know anything about White Hawk Vineyard then until afterwards we started researching. We're like, oh, this is a pretty darn good vineyard. And that wine came out great. But what happened with that was we didn't get to make the wine. We paid 
for that wine to be made. Location, a little input as to style or something along those lines, but you're not doing the physical labor. And so the wine comes out, we have a barrel of Syrah wine that tasted fantastic. And we're like, that was- How hard can it be? (laughs) It was like, it also wasn't fun. That wasn't, we want to make wine. We don't, I don't want to just have somebody else make wine for us and us stick a label on it. We wanted to make the wine. And that was what triggered us to say, yeah, this is what we want to do. This is what we want to make our own wine. And we want to- retire into the wine world, which I don't know if that's the smartest retirement plan, but. (laughs) I've known people for whom that worked and others for whom it didn't work. Every story is a different one. So you're in Paso riding up and riding up the coast and you, you settle on this amazing area. And is, is this in part because of its reputation as a wine area, or is it more just about this sort of bucolic beauty of the area at that point in time? So we settled on this in really 2012. We started the winery in 2013. That was long before people knew who, what Paso was. We saw what it can be and we liked how the soil was. We liked the proximity to the ocean. We just liked in terms of winemaking, we liked what that area offered to the fruit and to the grapes that were growing there. And when we started, Paso wasn't known yet. It wasn't until I think 17 that it got, I'm whipping that number out, I don't know, when it got named Wine Region of the Year. And that was when we really started to see, people started to recognize Paso and it started to boom a bit. So we were ahead of the curve, but it just, we just loved everything about it. And one of the things when we first started the winery, which blew our minds, because again, we're from Jersey, so we're not exactly the most trusting people, (laughs) right? We were getting fruit from a vineyard for our Cabernet Franc, for our 2013 Cab Franc. And we found another winery that was getting fruit from right next to us, same vineyard, the next next block over. And Mm -hmm. so we went to that winery. And we were like, let's go taste that Cab Franc. Let's go see what they do with this fruit. And we got there. And as with so many places in Paso, when you go to the tasting room, you're meeting the winemaker or the winemaker's family. And so it turned out that it was the wife, the owner behind the counter. And we started talking and she found out that we were going to make wine from this vineyard. And she called her husband in, Norm, And she called him in and he was out in his own vineyard. He had his own, he was out doing his thing. And here he comes pulling in on his tractor, right? In the middle of work, stops work and sat down with us, opened another bottle of Cab Franc as we drank this bottle of Cab Franc together and told us what to expect from this vineyard and what the owner of the vineyard is going to try to do because we're new and not to let her do because it's better for her and not better for the fruit. And it was hours that this man took out of his life to help us. And we were blown away by that. And that one, he would stop working to do that. And two, like to tell us the secrets of the thing. And that we, to this day, that 2013, our very first vintage of Cabernet Franc got a 91 and wine enthusiast. 
And we say a lot of that had to do with Norm because everything that he told us the owner was going to try to do, she did. And we're like, nope. And we probably would have let her do it because we would have expected her to know more than we did at that point. Have you seen seen those kinds of relationships, those kinds of interactions with people who are veterans of an area persist over your time in Paso? We'll get into your mentorship aspect Mm -hmm. of of the wine business here in a little bit, but I've always, being in the Livermore Valley, being in a small area, what Paso was like in 2013, perhaps, there are people who the wine business seems to be pretty collegial if you're in the right area. People trying to help you. That second statement is the correct. (laughs) Not to disparage any particular region, but I think once a region gets famous and the barrier to entry financially and otherwise is huge, people are less apt to help their neighbor out because you're all competing for that very same nickel, let's just say. Have you found that from 2013 forward, that people in Paso, your neighbors were there to help when you needed it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I find it so heartwarming, honestly, that when we have a question of something, have, hey, this, I have a question, this happened, what what do we do? And they're all so generous with their experiences. And when you talk about large wineries in Paso, they're not massive, right? They're probably medium sized compared to some other areas, but to us, they're large. Even those wineries, those winemakers are helping the smaller guys with because they've seen more, they've been around longer, they've done all this stuff. And so, yeah, it absolutely it does. And and you do exactly the same thing. Like I I, I joke about it, but you did. You talked me off a ledge with, with White Cabernet Franc because you started it a couple of years before we did. We reached out to you and you could have very easily said, nope, nope, I'm not going to help. And you didn't. You were there texting me and and responsive to my questions as we were processing it. And we have some winemakers in Paso that were helping us in a different way, already changing things, how we're going to process that white Cabernet Franc next year, changing that press from the system we use to a champagne press, right. because a sparkling press, because it's more gentle and we can get less color out of it. So, you know, we have, and our tasting room is right on the corner of downtown. So it is the best people watching plays ever because we have it's a corner filled with windows. Nice. So many different winemakers are just in town and they'll walk by and hi and come in. And it's a conversation. It's always a conversation. And yeah, yeah it's a beautiful thing about Paso. That I truly believe that the, what is it? Rising tide raises all ships type right. thing. That is Paso in in a nutshell. And I... I... A little envious of Paso in a way, in part because of that, that I don't know how many wineries or a couple hundred wineries in Paso at this point in time. And as you say, back in 2013, the number was probably a third that seen a lot of growth or a couple of brands there that are well known that have really skyrocketed and, and helped to move the reputation of the whole region up, I think. And and Livermore Valley is a, is one of the oldest wine growing regions in California, but very small still. There's only about 40 wineries there. There's 2,500 acres planted, and there there is 
having worked in vineyards, buying fruit from all over the place for our Pinot Noir brand back in the day and now Cabernet Franc, there are certain areas that are wine centric. You know, that, that everything there, practically everything there has to do with wine, whether it's barrels or glass or capsules or whatever, people are in the business in some form. And when you have this sort of natural ferment of people who are in the business, all dependent upon each other in a way, all dependent upon the people who come into the region, uh, being able to walk in and, and see, hey, Joe from down the street, how are things going? You know, how, how how's that Cabernet Franc hanging this year is provides a lot of food and, and psychic food and energy that I think if you're receptive to it, does nothing but help in the growth of your individual brand, my individual brand, but in the brand Paso Robles in your case. Yeah, absolutely. And it really is. I feel you have your core. You have, I have my core winemaking, winemaker family per se, that I have absolutely no question, no problem texting like maybe six guys that mm -hmm. I'm like, hey, what would you do in this situation? Or how would you handle this or whatever? And those guys are always there to answer. And they've been making wine a lot longer than I have. So I always feel like I'm always asking the questions and I'm not really answering too many. But my time will come too. I there's been a few. I, there's one person now that has come to me twice about questions. I'm like, oh, yay, yay, I can pass <laughs> this on. But I also feel that even if they're not my core people, that I can go, I feel comfortable asking anybody, even those bigger players in in the Paso you know, area. I, if I had a question, I don't think that there would be any issue. And they just... The other thing is that I love is, like I said, I'm downtown and mm -hmm. the camaraderie of the downtown wineries in that little square area, there's 27 wineries. Wow. That's a lot of competition, right? That's a lot of competition, but it doesn't feel like competition to us. Somebody will come in and they'll say, in fact, earlier in the month in December, somebody came in and they're like, I'm looking for that three letter wine. Yeah. And I was like, the three letter wine, that's a three letter <laughs> wine. GSM? They're like, yes, GSM. I said, oh, okay. They're like, do you have that? And I'm like, no, I don't. But what I did was I took out the downtown map and I circled the wineries that have a GSM. And off they went and they purchased GSM from two of those wineries that I circled. There's a constant amount. If anybody goes in and says, I want a Cab Franc, everybody sends them, even the big people <laughs> send them to me. It's not a zero sum game. It's hard when you and Michael, I think, are in the same boat that I am in this sense, is that my bread on my table comes from making and selling wine. It didn't come from a fortune. I didn't, and right. it didn't either. You're in the wine business. And so sometimes we get, I think, a little... I get a little uh, worried if the sales aren't happening immediately because you know what the cash flow situation is, you know what how much grapes cost and barrels and everything. But I think that from our perspective, the wine relationship is an interesting, beautiful, complicated relationship. There's a relationship between the farmer and the grapes, the winemaker and the fruit and the resulting wine. 
And then there's always this relationship between the winemaker, the winery, and the consumer, the person who receives what it is that you're trying to give people, right? The beauty that you're trying to foist upon the world only exists when it's perceived by somebody else. And when I think about it that way, I realize not everybody's going to buy Cabernet Franc. Not everybody is going to gravitate in that direction to our style of Cabernet Sauvignon or what have you. But it's it's in building that building these kind of fibers between the two of us, the kind of aesthetic relationship that we're trying to create is where you get where I get emotional value from what I do. But also I think that ultimately that relationship when, once it starts, ends up being stronger than it would be if I'm just trying to get a discounted bottle of wine into somebody's basket. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the my favorite things of the tasting room is previously, because we only opened the tasting room into 2023, right? Mm -hmm. So up to that point, it was really, oh, look, we got a sale online or we were at an event and there's not really so much of that that meshing at an event because there's i don't know a thousand people trying to get an extra glass of wine or whatever but in the tasting room you're spending at least an hour with these people and it's not here's my wine this is what i do but but, but you're having a conversation with these people that you're learning something about them and they're learning something about you. And it's like that mesh, like you're talking about, comes together. And then some, especially if they're a local for us, to see them come back and say, oh, I, I just want a glass of wine. I'm having dinner down the street and I thought I have a glass of wine. To have those repeat people come in to extend that relationship with is one of the things I love the most about the tasting room. It's a lot more personable to have that tasting room than it was just when we were selling online. Absolutely. I. What does Cabernet Franc mean? Oh my God. That is my passion. That is my soul. That, I don't know, I think, I used to tell Mike, he still does, I tell Mike that when I pass away, he's going to cremate me and drop me over the Miami Dolphin Stadium. But I think I'll end up in a Cabernet Franc vineyard. That is really, we've, that is what we do. That is, that is our soul, I believe. That's really what we love so much. And we get that, like you said, not everybody is going to go towards that direction. It is a very underappreciated grape variety. Uh, and there's a lot of people that don't know what Cabernet Franc is, but I get so happy when they don't know what Cabernet Franc is. Because when they come in, I get to tell them and share with them what Cabernet Franc is and get decide how geeky I can get with them about Cabernet Franc. And so somebody who comes into the tasting room, it's wonderful when they come in and say, oh my God, I, I have to, I love Cab Franc. I need to have your Cab Franc. That's beautiful. I absolutely love it. But when somebody who doesn't know Cabernet Franc comes in, I get happier. Absolutely. I, I feel the same way. So 2013 your first vintage. And you mentioned that you were, you had a 2013 Cab Franc. Mm -hmm. So was that because you were already in love with Cab Franc or because that was the fruit that was available to you? No. So we actually fell in love with Cabernet Franc. We were up in Napa, Sonoma, 
and we were doing some tastings long before this, long before we started the winery. And we walked into William Harrison Mm -hmm. and the person behind the counter was pouring wines. And in all honesty, nothing was, we just, oh, this is nice. This is nice. This is nice. And then she said, we just had a club member come in. So we have this extra bottle open. Would you like us, would you like to taste that? And we joke, we're like, whoever says no to that, right? And so we were like, sure, we'll try that. And she poured it and she didn't really, she didn't even tell us what it was. That was her introduction. We have this extra bottle. And so we tasted it and we're like, oh my gosh, this is what wine is. This is fantastic. This is incredible. What is it? And she told us it was Cabernet Franc. And again, going geek wise, Cabernet Franc, we've never heard of Cabernet Franc. What is Cabernet Franc? How do you make Cabernet Franc? All these questions. And sadly, she didn't really know the answers to that. But we bought a few bottles, which for us was way out of our price range at that point. But it was such a wine that we absolutely loved that we bought a couple of bottles. And then that put us down the rabbit hole of researching Cabernet Franc and finding out what it is and what about it. And then we went on a mission. Every place we went, do you have Cabernet Franc? Do you have Cabernet Franc? Then we started researching the places that have it. Instead of just asking, we started finding places that made it and tasting it. So when we started the winery, Cabernet Franc was a twofold thing. One, we knew we were small. We started with 75 cases of one wine. So we knew we were going to make something. And marketing-wise, I didn't feel it was smart. I still don't feel it's smart to go in and make a Zinfandel, right? Because you have the Turleys, the Ducies, the Tobin Janes. You have these massive wineries that Zinfandel is the heritage grape, right? That's the grape that the Ducies brought in to start off with. Um, There's more Cabernet Sauvignon planted in Paso now, but Zinfandel was the beginning. So we're not going to do that not going to do a Syrah because all everybody makes a Syrah. So in that realm, we were like, okay, we're going to stay away from that. Let's see if we can make the wine that we love because one, it'll make our own niche, right? We'll be one of the few people who make it. And two, honestly, we didn't know if anybody would drink our wine. How are they going to buy our wine? So we were going to be drinking 75 cases. And (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Better be something we like. Right, very practical for, for doing something like that. So you have tasted a lot of Cap from around the world. Yeah. Uh, you've been making Cap Franc for 10 years now, plus in Paso. So what, and, and the last time we actually were together was in, was December 4th, Cap Franc Day. We'll get to that in a minute. But we were tasting, the, there was a Cap Franc seminar and kind of celebration of, of Paso Robles Cap Franc. And it's not an area that most people think of. If if they ever think of Cab Franc or an area, it's rare because there really <laughs> is an area in California that's identified with Cab Franc at this point in time. Certainly, a mission of ours uh, with right. respect. There's to- a few. There's a few regions that are trying. Indeed, and and it's exciting because I'm with you. I think that it's the most beautiful, sensuous, alluring, delicious, food friendly grape out there, and and so we want to help its burgeoning to every degree that can. What, what is it? And, and I was really impressed with the wines that we tasted that Beth and I and Aiden, my son, uh, tasted at that tasting. 
uh, I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting the deftness that Paso winemakers, knowing what I know about Paso GSMs and 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 and, and cabs, I was grat- it was gratifying to see that people I thought overall had a really good sense of what Cab Franc is supposed to be. Is that something that you've seen from Paso? And is there something about the Paso, Paso Robles terroir that is particularly uh, beneficial for Cab Franc? I think, first of all, I think that depth you're seeing is because of the east side, west side. So depending on which winery you tasted, you can taste anywhere really from almost an old world style to a new world style. So the west side of Paso is much cooler. And it it has obviously more of the ocean influence there. By the time it makes it over to the east side, we have that Templeton Gap that comes in that blows everything. And by the time it gets over to the east side, it's more like a, not quite like a gap anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little whisper. And then we have the beautiful calcareous soils. We have the limestone soils. And that adds that minerality to Cabernet Franc. And I think the majority of the people who make Cabernet Franc in Paso have some sort of a passion for it. They're not just they're not just making Cabernet Franc, right? There's a passion for it just to some extent. And we're learning how to get the expressions we want. We choose, we have two vineyard sites on the east side. We choose the east side because of the climate, because of the temperatures. We want more sun. We are not fans of pyrazines. Okay. Right? So for us, what, the west side. People who are listening to this don't know what pyrazines are. What do, in 15, Oh, you're asking me to get geeky? <laughs> what are pyrazines and how do they and how do they particularly affect Cabernet Franc? Pyrazine is a compound that is found in a lot of grapes, but that Cab Franc, Cab Sot, that family. And that's what gives us those bell pepper, the jalapeno, those flavors, that green flavor that you get in Cab Francs. Mostly you see a lot in the old world. And the thing that is intriguing about pyrazines is that they burn off in sun. So the more sun you add to the, not add, but the more sun that the vineyard gets, those pyrazines start to burn off. In Paso, the west side sees more fog. So that fog hangs on a little bit longer, and that's going to give a different expression of Cabernet Franc than on the east side, where we don't get, we have the fog, but it burns off a lot earlier. And then depending on what that expression is that the winemaker wants, you can then, Cabernet Franc is very much, you can mold it to what you want by how you train the vineyard, how you train those vines. So for our main vineyard, we're at a degree, the vines are planted at a degree that gives us more morning sun. And I like to say in the taste room, when I'm talking to people, I'm like, that way we get the benefit of the sun before it becomes too powerful. So if you go to the beach, if you're at the beach early in the morning, you get the sun, but you don't necessarily get burned unless you're me because I burn very super easily. And then in the afternoon, that's when you start really having to apply the suntan lotion 
the protective lotion because that sun is hotter and more intense. So for us, that angle gives us a little bit more time in the morning sun. And then the vines are trained to have extra leaf layers in the back. So that that dappled sun. So the leaves are the grapes natural suntan lotion. So if you want less pyrazine, I'm sorry, if you want more pyrazines, then you're going to train those vineyards a little differently. You're going to harvest them at a different time. There's things that you can do. And I think that the West side has a very different expression than the East side does. And it's to everybody's certain palate, which one they're going to like more. Where, where do you see the future of Cabernet Franc in California? And does it have a future? Is, are we at the beginning of something? Do you think? Uh, you, you're in a particularly uh, interesting place to know this because, and and I want to talk about Cabernet Franc Day in a minute, but you're a mentor of sorts for a lot of Cabernet Franc producers, or you are the person connecting Cab Franc producers and an audience in a really helpful way, to be certain, <laughs> in a very interesting way. But what, how bullish on Cab Franc? as a variety and how bullish on Cab Franc's future growth are you at this point in time? So I, I think that we're at the beginning of something. I don't think it's the very beginning, but we're definitely at towards, we're still going up and you can see that in, which is probably the the biggest negative of this is the Cab Franc grapes pricing has gone up significantly. And that is because people are more aware of Cabernet Franc and people are at consumers are asking for Cabernet Franc. But that darn child of his <laughs> is planted everywhere. So there's so much more Cabernet Sauvignon out there. And that that request is going down and Cabernet Franc's request is going up. And what that's meaning is Cab Sauv's pricing has dropped per acre and Cabernet Franc has tripled in, mm. in price. And that's a positive in the fact that you can see that this re- people are wanting Cabernet Franc. But for us, you and I, at this moment, it's making our Cab Franc grapes that were a lot cheaper a few years ago, a lot more expensive to to make sure we're getting the ones we want because you and I are both specific. We're getting very specific grapes. We don't, we're not just saying, oh, look, there's Cab Franc from the east side. I'll take it. We have very specific areas and blocks that are ours. Appellated. Right. Yeah, Franck, we're doing vineyard designates or that kind of thing. It's an interesting point you bring up about pricing. The most expensive fruit in Napa on average per ton, according to last year's Grape Crush report, was Cabernet Franc. More expensive than Cabernet Sauvignon. And I think almost entirely because it's so scarce. There was something like nine or 10,000 tons of Cab Franc crushed last year versus 250,000 tons. Right. Of- <laughs> so it was interesting about the, that to me, though, from in Paso anyway, is that the pricing wouldn't be going up if there weren't interest in the fruit. And the fact that there's not much of it available yet means the grower has finally a little bit of leverage on pricing. 
Usually the growers are the one that takes it in the shorts, especially when you're doing, you know, commodity fruit. And my suspicion is that as more acreage gets planted out to Cab Franc in Paso and Napa, Livermore, wherever, prices come down because there's more fruit available. Hopefully that, from my perspective, that price is sustained for the next decade because that means that the market is being, the market is reacting to the fact there are more consumers who want this wine right. and, and it takes it takes years for a vineyard to come into production. So there's going to be a lag there. But the idea that the prices stay high for a while, I think is a good thing for Cab Franc producers and for people out there who love the variety. Absolutely. I think anybody who who has done marketing class, whatever, right? It's demand, right? And yeah. it's what it is. And if there's not enough, uh, these people, the consumers are starting to fall in love with Cabernet Franc and they're looking for Cabernet Franc. And as a producer, there's not much choice to go to. And those of us who really know Cabernet Franc and live, die, breathe Cabernet Franc, we're not just going to go anywhere to get our Cabernet Franc. It's very specific. And absolutely, the price is going up. And I agree. As I like the fact that it's higher, one, because it shows that people are interested in it. But two, it keeps the people who really aren't so Cabernet Franc focused away from it. And that's the, everybody talks about the sideways effect and what that did to Merlot. And Yes, there's a line in that movie that nobody understands and they don't even get at the end that he's drinking the most expensive Merlot on the face of the earth. At the end of it, they don't get that. But the real sideways effect was that Merlot was planted everywhere. And there were people who didn't understand Merlot making Merlot. And there was a lot of bad Merlot out there. And that is really the fact. So you're right. And I agree with you. I, I agree with you. We should be so lucky that in the course of our career, however long it we have left in this, that becomes a problem for us because that would mean that one of my personal goals will probably have been met, which is that selfishly, we want Livermore Valley to be associated with the best Cab Franc in the country. And as a Cab Franc hub, and as I'm sure you want Paso to be looked at in that way as well. Every popular grape has gone through this. It's a cyclical business. It takes a long time for vineyards to come to fruition once they're planted. So we're always behind the curve. We think that Syrah is going to be the next big red, and it's been the next big red for the last 20 years, mostly off now. But it's a style business too, and things change. But people's tastes change. Chardonnay and Cabernet are going to be around forever. Pinot is now... I think if it's still is, I don't know that it's ascendant necessarily anymore. It certainly has achieved a level of ubiquity that it didn't have when we first started our Pinot Noir brand back in 2005. I would like to be in a position where there's a Cab Franc in every wine list that yeah. consumers know what Cabernet Franc is that they just, my idea with Cab Franc is that once you get it in a glass, a good version of Cab Franc and you sit with it for a while if you're of a certain type, a certain personality type, a certain aesthetic type, for instance, you can't help but fall in love with this grape. There's just yep. something about its beauty and mystery and, and all those aromatic 
comp complexities, flavor complexities that just make you go, holy cow. Wow. Okay. It now, evolves like so much in a glass. Absolutely. It, it evolves so much in a glass and it's like a shy little kid when you first pour it in a glass and it doesn't really want to show itself yet. And then if you just give it its time and gives it, give it a little attention, it breaks out of its shell and then it just show, then it's the kid who is showing you, look at me. And I just love that there really is an expression of Cabernet Franc for everybody. And you had talked about those different regions that we tasted in December, you have the Loire, which is a very distinct style of Cabernet Franc, right? And you may love that style, or you may hate that style, right? And then we have the Villanite style, which is a completely different, right? You're talking a lighter Cab Franc, which much more pyrazine, much more herbaceousness from the Loire Valley versus Villanite in Hungary, which is a bigger Cabernet Franc and a little bit of that green, a little bit. And then your Livermore is a different expression than my expression of Cabernet Franc. And I don't think in terms of other grape varieties that there is a grape variety that can have so many different dimensions to it. Cabernet Sauvignon is pretty much Cabernet Sauvignon. It's either heavily oaked or it's not heavily oaked, but it's still right. <laughs> Cabernet Sauvignon. And Chardonnay, the same thing. It's either an oaked Chardonnay or it's not an oaked Chardonnay, but it's a Chardonnay. And Cabernet Franc doesn't really fall into that category. It is such an expressive grape variety and has so many different expressions. And even as somebody who makes it, you know what? Sometimes I feel like pouring myself a Loire Valley. Sometimes I feel like a different expression. And that's what I love about the grape. So do you remember the moment? Were you drinking a glass of Cab Franc? What were you doing when hashtag Cab Franc Day pops? <laughs> so... Hashtag Cab Franc Day came about, I say, because I'm a Jersey girl and we are known to be very sarcastic. But so at Jersina Wines, Mike and I have very, there is a big line of duties that we do, right? So I am the salesperson. I am the marketing. I am the social media. I'm the face, right? Mike is legal, he, he's the one that fills out all of those forms. I don't even know what the forms are. And he's filling them out. He's making sure I don't get arrested is basically what he's doing. Um, it's a good role. Yes, <laughs> it's an important role. So we were, we had made our 2013 and we were getting to, re we were getting ready to release it in 2015. And I was sitting here going, how is anybody going to know who we are like nobody's gonna know dracina wines we don't have a tasting room we we have 75 cases of wine how is anybody gonna know what we are and so i was looking at things and i was like gosh there's cab day on this day and there's merlot day merlot month 
right? There's Sauvignon Blanc Day. There, there's two Sauvignon Blanc Days. There's Carmenere Day. There's all. There's a wine holiday for everything. And where was my Cab Franc? There was no Cab Franc Day. So I said, and this is the Jersey part. I'm like, I'm going to just start that my own holiday. Nobody can tell me I can't do that. So I went to social media and from day one, which may not have been the smartest thing, but from day one, <laughs> it was not about Dracaena wines. It really was not about Dracaena wines, Cabernet Franc. Yes, if you Google Cab Franc Day, it's going to say Lori Bud Dracaena wines. But from day one, it really wasn't about promoting Dracaena wines. It was about promoting how we love Cabernet Franc and to sh to get more Cab Franc love out there. So I decided I was going to start Cab Franc Day and I hate rotating holidays. I hate days that are it's the third Thursday or the we had just had the full moon in this. And now I hate those days. So I wanted a very specific day so that whenever you Google it, it's going to say Cab Franc Day is this day. I don't want it to be this year is this day. This year is this day. So I felt that it needed to have some significance. I didn't just want to randomly pick a day. And so those who know Cabernet Franc know that Cardinal Richelieu is the father, basically, of Cabernet Franc because he loved it. And he is really responsible for taking those clippings from the Labornis region, Bordeaux, where it's a blending grape and bringing it to the Loire Valley and planting them, which I'm sure he didn't do, <laughs> had somebody plant them at the Abbey. And then they flourished. And the Loire Valley is considered the home, the birthplace of Cabernet Franc. And if you Google it, it actually is a little confusing because you've got Bordeaux, you've got, you've got the Loire, where is, you know, he brought it there. Where's the birthplace? I, there's, was it Bordeaux? Mm. Where in Spain was it right? And that yes, and that's true. It is a Spanish wine. It is a Spanish wine. It was on the Spanish side and right. it was brought down, which is another thing. People think it's a French grape. It's really not a French grape. That's what has trickled down. He passed away on December 4th. And I felt that was a homage to him and his part in playing in the Cab Franc. So December 4th became Cab Franc Day. I went to social media, and I, which was only Twitter at that point. Great. And I said, hey, let's celebrate Cab Franc love. Let's do this. Let's do that. December 4th. And I promoted it daily for most of November. I scheduled a lot of tweets and did all that stuff. And on December 4th, I held a Twitter chat, and it trended second on Twitter behind chocolate chip cookie, because it's also chocolate chip cookie day. <laughs> and I could not believe it. I remember we weren't even home. We were on vacation in Michigan. I don't know why we were in Michigan. I'm going to say we were gambling, but we were in Michigan. And I went up to the hotel room to do the chat. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching on the side of Twitter where it used to say trending. Right. And there it was. Cab Franc Day was trending second. And I'm like taking a pictures and, you know, thing. And I'm screaming at Mike going, oh, my God, look at this. And that was it. It just became a thing. And then since then, it is celebrated in there's Cab Franc Day celebrations in so many countries. 
that are are doing it. And it's just amazing to me that my little sarcastic day is now internationally and that kind of life is a beautiful thing. Mike poured at the first Cab Franca Palooza in Livermore last year in June of 23. And I think he had a good time. We haven't talked specifically about it, but he was one, Dracina was a one winery out of, I think we had 32 or three from all around the world for our first Cab Franc celebration parties of Cab Franc. Does Cab Francapalooza as a concept and as an event play a role in Dracina's thought process? I get, again, so... The concept was never really Dracaena wines. It was Cab Franc. And so when I when you reached out to me and you said you were doing that, it warmed my heart that there is another event that is showing how many people love the grape variety. And that's really what it was always about was just getting people together to celebrate the grape. And in all honesty, we may be the youngest wine holiday because all those other ones were out there, but I think it's got the most momentum. You don't see, you do have the Pinot Noir thing, <laughs> thing, whatever. I'm blanking on what they call it. Yeah. So that that's pretty big. That's pretty big. I'll give them that. But we have the Cab Francapalooza. We have literal celebrations in Hungary. They celebrate it. They have the Franc and Frank Franc Conference. We have Chile does an international celebration where there's something where people come together to pour on December 4th. So it's just, I love seeing it. It's honestly a little hard to, it's my baby. So it's a little hard, but when I see the passion that's behind it, it's good. And it's, it's nice to see that there's other people. There, there's only so much I can do. <laughs> Indeed, and there's the. I, I love the idea of, of. From my perspective, where there there needs to be a brand cab franc. Creation build continuation. Not enough people know what the variety is supposed to taste like, and not enough right. people know how well it goes with food. That sort of thing. We're in the infancy stages, in my mind, with the average consumer knowing what cab franc is. I think if if brand Cab Franc is built and you have a, an audience out there that knows what Cab Franc is supposed to be, then the wineries have an easier time of funneling that attention down mm -hmm. to Paso Robles, Dracaena, LXV, Livermore Valley, Stephen Kent, and, and other wineries, that sort of thing. It, it's We're raising a village, hopefully. In Cap Franca Palooza, Cap Franc Day, the other celebrations they do one in, in South Africa as well. There's a there's these are all necessary, I think, in order to build the brand around the variety first, in my mind. And what I like about Cap Franc Palooza is yes, December 4th is Cab Franc Day, and there's celebrations around the world on December 4th, and that's fantastic. But then what about the rest of the year? And so Having Cab Francapalooza, you had it in June, whatever. It's okay. So December came, people, yay, Cab Franc. And then, okay, but maybe we're not thinking Cab Franc anymore. And then we have Cab Francapalooza in June, or then we're like, okay, here's another thing. And then maybe somebody finds, and then Michael Kelly does the Cab Franc wine competition in April. And that 
that does it. So if we can get something like quarterly, right? So Cab Franc Day is December. We have April is the Cab Franc competition. But then we have something quarterly. Then it's it's an annually throughout the whole year is memorizing thinking. People Cab are getting Franc. their brain tickled about Cab Franc more than once. And right. repetition is the key to any kind of visibility, I think. Lori, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know you're going through some stuff and I appreciate you you being willing to, to talk with me. And I, I wish the best for you and Mike and the family. I, I love Cab Franc and this helps me get my mind off of other stuff. Good. Thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Our Cab Franc Blanc is about to be bottled here at the end of February. And I Ours look- too. Good. I look forward to sharing with you. I look forward to tasting your wine. Uh, you've been uh, a generous friend and uh, safe travels back to California and, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. We'll see you. Bye.